Uh, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we're so um, just proud to have such great fathers in our midst and uh, the ones that you, you gave to us personally. We're so thankful for them. And we just uh, pray that you'll do an extra special blessing this year on uh, fathers and, and um, just thank you for them. And we just thank you for Phil and for his willingness to teach us new things in our life and to help us make our lives better. And we just pray that we'll have the ears and the mind and the heart to open and just hear the things he has to offer for us and just uh, use it in our lives to um, better your kingdom and to those around us and to make us role models. We're thankful for his dedication. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jeff. Wednesday afternoon, I had an unexpected block of time given to me almost as a gift. And I decided to use that time to continue studying for the message. And when I say it was a block of time, really, it was about three or four hours. And that doesn't happen very often in my week. And so I was back in the office and had the door closed and digging as deep into the message as I possibly could, studying all kinds of different things. When Carol Owsbury, who works in our office, came back and knocked on the door and told me that there was a fellow on the phone that she thought I needed to visit with. So she continued on by saying, I could answer his questions, but I really think you should talk to him. And Carol would have done a fine job talking with this man as well. But I was happy to answer the phone. Things like this happen on a fairly regular basis when I have those blocks of time given as a gift. Sometimes I think they come directly from the Lord. The man that was on the other end of the phone was very angry when I answered on my side. I gave him my name and he launched right into his agenda. He said, you tell me how you can believe there's a God was obvious by the tone in his voice that he was angry. I asked him what his name was, and he told me, and I'll just keep that between the two of us. And I said, as you're asking that question, it sounds like you've been pursuing some answers for a long time. And he said, oh yeah, I have. And he launched in then to his pursuit. Did it by telling me the story of his life. Usually when people tell you the stories of their lives, they'll tell you about the peaks and the valleys. This man has not experienced many peaks if any. But he has lived in a valley for a long, long time. In the midst of that valley, I'm sure that he has uncovered a lot of emotions, but anger was the primary one that he was using Wednesday afternoon. As he would ask different questions, I would try to get him to take a break long enough to answer his questions. Those breaks never came. I realized very quickly that he wasn't calling to ask questions. He was calling to make declarations. The declarations were that He did not believe in God, and there was no way that he could. He was angry at the Lord. He was mad at God, and and I've been around the block enough times to know that sometimes when people get that angry and mad at God, they need him to have skin on, and and that means that from time to time, I'm going to be the recipient of it. And I was Wednesday afternoon. I was a recipient of all of that anger. I can tell you that as the conversation got started, it didn't get off on a good foot, and it ended even worse. As he escalated in his anger, I did as well, not necessarily one of my finest moments, but as we continued to talk with one another, we both got more and more upset with each other until finally he had disintegrated to the point of cussing me out, threatening me, and wishing me a violent public death. That's really where it ended. I found myself analyzing the entire conversation and recognizing that if we were to boil down everything that he was asking me, we could boil it down to questions like this. Why do bad things happen to people? If there is a loving God sitting somewhere in heaven, how does he look down on this earth and let these types of things happen to people? 
And even if we were to boil it down more, this is exactly where we would get to. How did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? Why would God let this happen to me? Those are common questions, normal questions for people that spend more time in the valley than the peaks. But there are also normal questions for people that just do life because we see bad things happen and we want to know why. We want an answer for them. Even if they're not happening to us and they're happening to other people, we still want an answer for why this is happening and why God would allow it. If He is truly a loving God, why would He allow this? Those are not new questions. They're not something that has just popped up on the scene. They have existed since before the time of Jesus. But the real answers actually came during the time of Jesus. He addressed them. Now, I, like many other preachers, will oftentimes throw out just a flippant answer to people. And I don't mean it to be flippant. It's just something that I have known for so long that I expect that other people know it as well. So do a number of other preachers and teachers and Christian leaders. When we go to answering that question, we throw out something that we accept as fact without realizing that other people are not at that same place. And so they can't accept that answer as easily as we might. The answer that we tend to give is free will. That's what causes all of this pain. But there's a lot more to that, and Jesus helps us understand it. I want to show you how he did that this morning in the Gospel of John. If you have your Bibles with you, open to the ninth chapter. We are going to jump into all kinds of teaching this morning. You're going to have to listen fast. I have to be honest as we get into this and tell you that some of what we're going to be looking at would fit in the deep end of the swimming pool. And that means that we are going to be in the deep water for a while. And you're going to have to tread water with me and I may lose you. But if I do, don't check out. You jump back into the message and stay with me all the way through this as we explore some deep teaching in the Bible. Beginning in John chapter 9. Take a look at verse 1 with me. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now there's the question. It's just worded a little bit differently. How did this happen to this guy? He was born blind. This didn't happen when he was 8 years old or 18 years old or 38 years old. This happened before he was born. He was born blind. How did this happen? Now, the Jewish people would believe that most bad things are tied to sin, either your sin or the sin of your heritage, your parents. So they were asking a question out of their belief system. How did this happen to him? What sin did he commit that was so bad that he was actually born blind? Or what sin was he going to commit later in life that he would be born under this type of judgment? Or worse, how bad were his parents' sin? that this was carried out on him. I want you to listen to how Jesus answers that question. Verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. 
So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now let me stop here again. A lot of times when we are reading John chapter 9, that's as far as we go. We get stopped, hung up, if you will, or in logger terminology because, well, that's just where I'm at today. We get stomp hung on that part of the story right there. And we don't want to go any further than that because we see a miracle. And the miracle is fascinating to us. Jesus just healed this man that was born blind. And look at how he did it. He spit on the ground. He made some mud. He took that mud, put the mud on the man's eyes, and told him to go wash in a pool. We want to know all about the process. What was it about that dirt? What was it about the pool in Siloam? What is it about the meaning of that pool, scent, that brought about all this healing? And why did Jesus heal this man this way, but then heal other people, even of blindness, in all kinds of other ways? Why did this man's healing require these actions? The answer is very simple. We have no idea. We don't know why Jesus chose to heal this man this way. We don't know why this mode was chosen by him. But we do know that Jesus varied things up enough almost to make healings look random so that we would never be in a place where we could trust the process more than the person. And that's why stuff like this would happen. That's why Jesus would heal this way, so that we didn't begin to believe that there was a magic formula or a process, but rather understand that healing comes through the person. Still, people are so fascinated by that part of the story that they missed the rest. Let's move on together. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. Now, I want to establish something as fact before we move any further. Here's the fact. There are times that we will face challenges in this life so that God's glory might be revealed. Now, that's a fact that doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from history. It doesn't come from somebody else's mouth. It comes directly from heaven. Jesus himself said that. Look again at verse 3. Jesus answered, it was not that the man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There are times, many times, when the challenges that we face are God-given so that God's glory might be revealed. But that is not always the case. There are other times that we face challenges from other sources. It's not just that God's glory might be revealed, though God's glory will always be revealed in those if we allow them to be. There are times that we face challenges because, like I said to this man and many others have said at other times, free will is a part of our world. And when free will really reared its ugly head, consequences became a part of our life on this earth. And those consequences brought about bad things, really bad things. And we have to face those because that's how God set it up. Now, when the Lord gave us free will, he gave us a double-edged sword. And it can seem awful nasty to us until we get to a place where we really understand it. Think about what free will is. When God created men and women, he placed within us 
our free will so that we could choose whether to love Him, to follow Him, and be obedient to Him, or choose to love ourselves, follow our own desires, and be obedient to the world. Our choice. Now the question is, why would God do that? He was creating all of mankind. Why would He place that type of a will within us? The answer is easy to understand, because He never wanted robots. God never wanted a forced reaction from his creation. He wanted a choice, a love choice from his creation. Now, here's the way we might illustrate that. Fellas, this will make sense to you. If there's a lady that you have been wanting to date and you decide to be bold enough to call her and ask her to go out with you, do you want her to be forced into a situation with no choice on her own to say yes? No, you don't. (laughs) couple of single guys in first service that said, yes, that would be great. Well, most of us in all honesty would say, no, that's not what we want. And then if that relationship progresses on to the point where you're going to propose marriage, when you ask her if she will spend the rest of her life with you in a love relationship, do you want her to have a forced reaction where she has no choice in the matter when she has to say yes? Or do you want her to choose to love you? You want her to choose to love you. Well, that's the same thing that God wanted with us. He wanted us to make that choice. So he gave us free will, understanding that it would come at great cost, that there would be people that would misuse it. In the early days of creation, when Adam and Eve had been given free will, they used it the right way. Let me show it to you. Keep your finger there in John chapter 9, but turn back to the book of Genesis with me, the second chapter. Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 15. The Bible says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's free will. That's the moment where free will was uncovered. I'm going to leave this tree in the middle of the garden, and I'm going to tell you not to eat of it. So don't. And if you don't eat of it, then you're going to live in this garden forever. But if you do choose to eat of it, then you will surely die. That's free will. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, there's free will, but I want you to hold on to the side of the pool because the water is about to get a lot deeper and it is about to run over us really fast. If you take the last word in verse 25 and make it stand out in your Bible, that word is ashamed, you are going to find some amazing, deep teaching. Now, here it is for you. 
The Bible is the only accurate record in existence of the creation of mankind and the history of the world. According to the biblical record, the world is 6,000 years old. You can start today and trace it back through the genealogies of the Bible all the way back to Adam. And you will find that our earth, the one that we live on today, is 6,000 years old. Now, there are a lot of people from a scientific standpoint that will argue with that idea. And they'll say, well, no, the earth has to be older than 6,000 years. It has to be millions of years old or billions of years old. Every one of those ideas, listen to me on this, is supposition. Every one of those ideas is theory, and it is only theory. The Bible is the only record we have that will go back and show us 6,000 years. And the only caveat to those 6,000 years is found in that word, ashamed. We have absolutely no idea how long Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden unashamed. We have no idea how long they were choosing to use their free will to stay in relationship with God, face-to-face relationship. Now, there are some people that might tell you that was thousands of years. Others might say millions, and some obviously say billions, but we don't know. I am one who believes that it wasn't that long. Now, during that time, not long, might have meant 100 years. Maybe they walked and talked with Jesus face-to-face for 100 years. Maybe. That's just, again, supposition. But that's the only caveat to the age of the earth that we find biblically. And if you hold to the inerrancy and the accuracy of the Bible, which I do, I believe that the earth is just over 6,000 years old. And that's the biblical record of it. But there is room for discussion in that word, ashamed. After that period of time was over, and we don't know how long that was, free will took a turn. It took a big turn. In chapter 3, verse 1, let me show it to you. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig trees together and made themselves loincloths. Now, no longer were they living in the presence of the Lord unashamed, but they were ashamed. And after that shame set in, fear followed very quickly. They were afraid, and they should have been, because consequences were going to follow. They already knew the big one, they would die. Now, if they were like us, they probably thought that was going to be instantaneous. It wasn't. It took a hundred and some odd years before that would happen, or hundreds of years before that would happen. But now all of a sudden, mankind, men and women both, were limited by age. We were no longer immortal, but there were other consequences that came as well. Like this in chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Or like this in verse 17. 
And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles and trees that will hit you in the head shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And then there's this consequence, starting in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The worst consequence of all of them was being kicked out of the garden, being kicked out of the presence of God. That was the worst. But as you unravel all of this and uncover the depths of teaching in free will and the consequences that became a part of our world because of the misuse of free will, here's what you will discover. There were two types of evil that entered the world in that moment. When Adam and Eve chose to sin, two types of evil entered the world. Here they are. There was moral evil and natural evil. And both of those are detailed for us in Genesis chapter 3. But let me define them for you so that we're on the same page. Keep treading water with me. Keep swimming. Here we go. Moral evil. Moral evil is the immorality, pain, suffering, and tragedy that comes because we choose to be selfish, arrogant, uncaring, hateful, and abusive. Moral evil is a direct result of our choices. Moral evil is a direct result of our sin. When we choose sin, when we choose our own path, we have to expect that there will be consequences. That's moral evil, tied directly to the choices that you make. Natural evil is different. Here's the definition of natural evil. Natural evil involves things like wildfires, earthquakes, tornadoes, and hurricanes that cause suffering for people. All of the things that we see in the natural realm are a result of the fall of man. They came as a result of the misuse, the perversion of free will. When mankind, Adam and Eve, made the choice that they did in the garden, this was set in motion. Natural evil became a part of what we have to deal with. We always hear people asking this question, if there was a loving God, how come this hurricane just killed hundreds of thousands of people? It's a direct result of natural evil. If there is a loving God, why did this tornado rip through this community and kill hundreds of people and take out the homes of all of these folks? It's a direct result of natural evil. Cancer, diabetes, diseases that we deal with are a direct result of natural evil. And all of that is tied back to free will. All of that is tied back to the fall of man. Now, as you study on past Genesis chapter 3 and you go all the way through the book of Revelation, here's what you'll find. That God is going to deal with natural evil when Jesus returns, when he comes for the second time. That's part of the reason as Christians we long for the return of Christ because he's going to restore the world. He's going to restore the earth. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We are excited for that moment. But until then, natural evil is going to continue on. 
but with moral evil. With moral evil. Here's the great news. God already dealt with it. And He did it through His Son, Jesus Christ. And as Jesus transforms one life at a time, moral evil begins to lose its hold on society. And certainly, as God transforms one life at a time, moral evil loses its hold on those individuals because we're no longer living for ourselves or the world. We are making the choice to follow Jesus. And God's glory is revealed. You see how that works? So Jesus says to all of those Pharisees when they ask that question, how could this happen to him? Who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, this happened that that God's glory might be revealed. He meant that I might show up and you might see me for who I am. God's glory is revealed. When we understand that Jesus overcomes moral evil and even helps us to process natural evil, God's glory is revealed. And that's the way it's supposed to work. Now, moral evil is something that the book of Romans tells us every person is going to deal with. And natural evil, the book of Romans would actually tell us, has the entire creation, the entire world, groaning for that moment when God will restore it. Everything is that bad. But once we find Jesus, that all turns around. And part of the the overall work of Jesus on this earth was to help us understand restoration and redemption. In fact, there are four parts to Jesus' work on this earth. I want to show them to you. In order to do that, we're going to go to the book of Colossians. Keep your finger there. In John chapter 9, we're coming back. But go with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. The Apostle Paul says this, speaking of Jesus. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, a lot of times, all we want to believe that Jesus came to do was to forgive our sins and grant us eternal life. But Paul says there's more to it. Open your eyes, there's more to it. Here are the four things that he says Jesus does for us. Take a look at these. He came to deliver us out of darkness and into the light to transfer us from the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of heaven, to redeem us and to forgive us. Those are the four works of Jesus. When God sent him to this earth, he said, I want you to go and do all four of these things. Now, if you were to take all four of those and put them together under one heading, you would find really quite an interesting word. That word is aphesis. Now, aphesis is from the Greek language. There may be another way to say it. That's the easiest way for me to say it. Remember, I'm not a linguistics expert. This idea of aphesis is set in motion to capture all four of those works of Jesus. Here's the definition of aphesis. It is a release from bondage or imprisonment, forgiveness or pardon of sins, letting them go as if they had never been committed. It is the remission of the penalty. That's aphesis. It is all about setting us free. Jesus came to set us free. In the Old Testament, there's a beautiful picture of it. And it came around every 50 years. It was called the year of Jubilee. God gave it as a gift to the Hebrew people. The year of Jubilee had two purposes. The first was to deal with people that had been enslaved. Hebrew people that had been enslaved. 
God, in the year of Jubilee, said that all slaves, Hebrew slaves, would be set free. Now, that speaks specifically to those who chose slavery to become bond servants. Well, the Lord said, I'm going to allow that to happen for 49 years, but on the 50th year, they will be set free. Part of the protective nature of that was given to women and children. Because women and children didn't enter into slavery on their own. That was a direct result of their husbands and their fathers. So God said, I'm going to, on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, I'm going to set them all free. They all get their freedom back. What a great day that would have been. And the second purpose of Jubilee was to deal with land, the promised land. In that 50th year, the year of Jubilee, God's plan was that the land would revert back to the original owners. So if somebody had been themselves in a bad way financially, they needed to sell off some of the God-given property that they possessed, then God said in the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, I will give that land back to the rightful owners, back to the families. It will be an aphesis. Now here's how we know that God wanted that to happen. The Septuagint, start treading water with me again, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. The Old Testament was written in the Hebrew language. The Greek people translated the Hebrew Old Testament into New Testament Greek. It's called the Septuagint. The word aphesis is a Greek word. When you get into a deep study of the year of Jubilee, the word aphesis shows up. In fact, the chapter of the Bible that speaks to it the most is found in the book of Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Turn there with me, would you? The 25th chapter. There are 11 times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, in Leviticus 25, when the word aphesis is used. And it is used in the place of Jubilee. Like this, in verse 13. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. In Greek, in this year of aphesis, each of you shall return to his property. We could easily translate that this way in this year of redemption and restoration, everything will be made right. That was the whole idea of Jubilee. That was the beautiful idea of Jubilee. That was the God-ordained idea of Jubilee, that there would be healing and restoration and everybody would be back where they were supposed to be, doing what they were supposed to do. Now here's the great tragedy. Some might even say the epic tragedy of Jubilee. There is no historical record at all and no biblical record that would contradict this. So there is no biblical or historical record that the Hebrew people ever obeyed Jubilee. They never did it. It was their choice and they never did it. And God gave the whole idea of Jubilee, of Ephesus, to be this idea of what is to come. This is what the Messiah is going to bring. This type of restoration under Jesus is what you are going to live. But they never did it. So God went silent, just like he did in the Garden of Eden. He said, if that's the way you're going to be, if you're not going to follow my plans and you are going to progressively get worse because you're not going to accept Ephesus and Jubilee, then you do what you want to do. And from the book of Malachi to the book of Matthew, it's called the intertestamental period, and it lasted 400 years. God said, I'm not talking. He just went quiet. I have nothing to say. It doesn't mean that he wasn't there. It just means that he went quiet. But then he sent Jesus, and Jesus brought jubilee. Jesus brought aphesis. He brought restoration. He brought more than healing and forgiveness. He brought 
Ephesus to the world. And that's what we see in John chapter 9. Pick up with me, would you? Right where we left off in John chapter 9, verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud in my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. This man had all kinds of pain in his life. He was enslaved to that pain. And all you have to do is read those verses that we just read, and you can see it. There's at least six levels to it. Obviously, there was the blindness that the man was born with. That had its own pain. The consequences of that had to have been extreme. And the man spent his entire life with him until he met Jesus. But there were other pains, like the fact that these people called him a liar. The Pharisees said, you're a liar. That pain would pale in comparison to the other one that was just called out for us. His parents were more concerned with their own safety than his, so they shoved him under the bus. Can you imagine the pain of that? His parents said, oh, you deal with him. We don't want any part of this. And they removed themselves from him. They distanced themselves as far and as fast as they could so that they wouldn't bear any of the consequences for what their son had just experienced. How tragic. That type of a wound given by a mother and father takes a lot to overcome. And I promise you that that didn't happen that easily without a history of it leading up to it. So they just shoved him away. There are other wounds that are in there as well. Like this, the man was a great theologian. He really was. He had an understanding that surpassed the teachers of the law. But they dismissed him, here's another wound, because of his past. You were born blind and you think you're going to teach us? Ha! <laughs> That's not going to happen. So now this man has no standing at all in society. And it got worse. 
with the last wound, the sixth wound, they cast him out. They kicked him out. The church itself kicked him out. This man had all kinds of pain in his life. And then he met Jesus, and he experienced aphesis. He experienced jubilee. He experienced restoration. And it wasn't just for his sight. It was so much more than that. What he experienced was for his soul. Listen again to John chapter 9. We're going to pick up in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. A great picture of jubilee. A great picture of aphesis. It was captured there in verse 38 when he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Did you catch that that happened publicly? Jesus didn't say to this man, hey, you come back into this room and let you and I just sit down and have a talk and I want to see where you're at. It happened publicly to the point that the Pharisees heard it. This man said, I believe, and he worshipped him. He became a disciple in that moment, in that moment. And right there he experienced aphesis and jubilee and restoration. And not just for his blindness, that had already been taken care of. The physical man was already healed. The spiritual man, his soul was healed right there. That was his new beginning. But in order to experience it, he had to risk everything. I like the way Stephen Harderburn says this, not speaking specifically about this passage of Scripture, but Harderburn talking about what it means to become a Christian, to risk everything, says this. The path of healing takes you through the depths of your feelings, grief, forgiveness, and the embracing of all of your life. When there are areas that are not healing, you seek out and obtain the treatment that you need. You choose to heal. And with each choice, you allow God's healing grace to replace the sick parts of your soul. You find your life again, or perhaps for the first time. As you grow, you reach a point where you either move forward or you remain stagnant and miss your life. You either cower in fear to protect yourself or you take a leap of faith propelled by courage and you begin to risk. That's what this man did. He risked everything to experience Ephesus and Jubilee, healing and restoration and a brand new beginning. But first he had to face his own problems, the challenges that were a part of his life. Dr. John Townsend would say this about us facing problems. Problems are all around us. The best thing that we can do when we are confronted with something beyond our power or control is bring it to God. And in those moments, God will make a move towards us and heal our needs. That's pretty good. Townsend goes on to further explain it this way. The nature of problems themselves is that they are a gateway to God. When we get to that point, to that understanding, then we will see that God will reveal to us himself, his heart, and his helps that we might experience aphesis, jubilee, that we might experience restoration and a new beginning. And that's what the Lord wants for us. 
The problem the Pharisees had is a common problem. They were stuck on the how questions. How did this happen? How did he do it? Explain the process to us. How, 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 how? We see that all the time. People are always saying of God, how is he going to do this? How is he going to do that? How will the Lord take care of this? When the real question is who? Who is the one who's going to save me? Who is the one that's going to change my life? Who is the one that's going to restore my soul and redeem all that I am and all that I hope for? And the answer is always, say it with me, Jesus. The answer is always, let's say it again, Jesus. The answer is always, we'll say it with some conviction, Jesus. You see, that's the question and that's the answer. And it's the only one there is. Because the human condition is such that if we do not find Jesus, we will continue in a decay that is unexplainable, unexpressible. It is beyond words. It is moral and it is natural. And it leads to the pits of hell. It really does. But in Jesus, it all changes. So the who question is always answered with Jesus. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, we have covered a lot of ground today. A lot. You knew that I was concerned about that. And Father, I pray that those concerns didn't get in the way of the message. I pray that what needed to be preached was... I know that there are a lot of people here that wrestle with this issue of bad things happening, whether it's in their own life or in the world that we live in, and that wrestling match is overwhelming. It's crushing at times. So I'm asking that you help carry that burden for those that are stuck in the wrestling match. I pray that you'll lift it off of them and give them a new beginning. For those of us that have experienced that and in faith can trust you, Lord, there's nothing like it. I've experienced it. A lot of other people in this room have experienced it. Live it. And we are forever grateful for it. So thank you, Lord. Pray now as we look at what this message holds for us that we'll figure out the appropriate responses. In Jesus' name, amen.